Welcome to Away From The Keyboard. We give you a glimpse into the lives, interests, and tech behind today's technologists. Please join our hosts, Cecil Phillip and Richie Rump, as we get away from the keyboard. Welcome to Away From The Keyboard, where technologists tell their stories of how they started, how they grew, how they learned, and how they unwind. My name is Richie Rump, and joining me from his underground lair is my co-host, Cecil Phillip. You know, the cellular reception is crap down here. <laughs> it, damn T-Mobile. I should have gotten that uh, Verizon package instead, I think. I don't wonder how you're dealing with all the water issue, man, because you know the, the water table is pretty high here in, in Florida. So, you know, what's going on with that? I think that would explain why my feet are wet all the time. I really wasn't <laughs> sure. I thought I had bad pipes or something. Well, that and, you know, frankly, all the coral rock, you dig six inches, you hit coral rock. I mean, it must have taken you a long time just to dig all that out. Yeah, I'm coming back upstairs. <laughs> so what's going on, Richie? So I just got back from Napa, California. How was that? That was fascinating. So it was a, a company retreat type thing, and Lucy came along. Uh, spouses were uh, allowed to come on, and um, we enjoyed ourselves immensely. So we, we toured a couple vineyards and and wineries and uh, was able to uh, dine at great restaurants and doing stuff that we normally wouldn't do because we have kids. So did you try any of the wines or do any sampling? We did. We actually did uh, quite a bit of sampling. And Lucy and I are not big you know, drinkers at all. So you know, we were kind of oblivious to the, the different wines and the tastes and the pairings with the foods and all that stuff. But we learned a lot when we were there. And we actually got a, a really short list of a few wines that we actually liked. So hopefully in the next you know, couple months or so, we'll be, uh, we'll be testing those out. Nice. So one website that I want to bring to everyone's attention is stuffyoushouldknow.com. And it's not only just a website, but it's also a podcast where you could listen to the host talk about various topics ranging from science and health and a lot of these, a lot of interesting things. Um, one of the episodes I really liked was their show with Bill Gates where they actually spoke about renewable energy. Um, some other topics they talk about include like hurricanes and how nitrous oxide works. And, you know, a lot of these really cool things. And for me, I know most of the time that I consume content, whether it be reading books or listening to a podcast, I usually listen to a lot of developer-oriented technical content. So it was really good for me to kind of get out of the box a little bit and listen to some, some other things. So I definitely recommend people check it out. Yeah, it sounds fascinating. I, I know it um, sounds like something that I would enjoy immensely, so I'm definitely going to check it out. So who are we talk to today? So today we're talking to Mr. Dan Hermes. Dan is a Xamarin MVP, software consultant, and founder of Lexicon Systems, an award-winning Xamarin and .NET consulting firm. Dan helps developers create great mobile apps and helps business develop a winning mobile strategy. He speaks at conferences and teaches software development at colleges, developer user groups, and training centers. A contemporary renaissance man, Dan is also active in the arts. He's a recognized composer, and his classical crossover music has been aired on National Public Radio. He's an active digital artist, exhibiting his work internationally, and a founding director of Art Technology New England, ATNE. Dan is also the author of a new book entitled Xamarin Mobile Application Development. This episode was recorded on February 4th, 2016, and now our conversation with Dan Hermes. And now... Away from the keyboard's feature conversation. So Dan, welcome to Away from the Keyboard. It's really a pleasure for us to have you on the show. For our guests that are listening that might not know exactly who you are or what is it you do, could you give us a really brief introduction to yourself? Certainly. 
My name is Dan Hermes. I'm a, a software developer, an author, and uh, a presenter. And also, I run a little software consultancy called Lexicon Systems. Is that your company, or like how long? How long have you been doing that for? I started that company in 1999. Uh, and what kind of consulting do you guys do? Uh, we do uh, primarily uh, mobile application development, but also uh, suites of business software that involve web apps that uh, are coupled with mobile apps. So, so what led you to start this business? What led me to start this business? Well, I had been in the industry for about 15 years, and I had worked for a number of different companies. And I think I just decided it was time to strike out on my own and and see what there was to see. I was up and uh, came up to Boston, and I wanted the opportunity to be able to work with a lot of different types of organizations and uh, help them build software. So you said Lexicon is, is mainly mobile. So have you been always doing mobile before you started the company, or were you doing other things before that? Uh, well, obviously when we started, it was even a pre-internet boom, so oh. there was some desktop development. Even at that time, it was, it was BB, it was C++. And then when the you know, internet boom began, then the web development began. So lots of different types of web apps. And then, of course, um, many, many exciting years of .NET, ASP.NET, and then MVC. And then when it became clear that mobile was becoming more of a force in uh, business uh, applications, mobile business applications, I, I had to become more involved with that. And so that is now uh, a large part of what we do. So tell me, what types of apps do you specialize in? Do you have any particular, like, do you focus on phones and tablets, or do you focus on any type of business vertical, for instance, like insurance or healthcare or anything like that? That's a really good question. Uh, and we have sometimes ventured into specific verticals and worked in one for a while, but a lot of what we do is horizontal with specific technologies. We work primarily in the Microsoft stack, occasionally a little bit of open source, but we are Microsoft stack centric. And that means in the mobile area, we are Xamarin centric. And so we do mobile apps all across the board in different industries, in science, in sports, in insurance, in finance, just using the same technologies. And so it also looks like your company, you guys have worked on some pretty serious apps, right? So it's, it's not like you're doing these this forms over mobile type simple apps, right? But you guys are doing some serious work. So for instance, I see you did one with Thermo Fisher Scientific and then actually won an award. Right. Could you tell us a little bit about what, what, what building that app was like and how you felt about winning an award for it? Sure. So that was a collaboration. Um, a Thermo Fisher uh, was working with a company called uh, Grand, Grand Interactive. Um, William Grand uh, runs that group. It's a, another uh, sort of Boston-based group. And uh, he called upon us. He said, you know, we're working on the iOS piece and we need some help with the Android piece. Can you, can you do this? We said, absolutely. We did this project and the project itself was, was fascinating, really. Really, it was one of the most interesting projects I think I've ever worked on because, first of all, it was a client who just got it. Like this client was not guessing. They were not messing around. They knew exactly what they wanted, exactly what they were doing. And what they were doing was not just creating an app to try and sell things. They were creating an app to try and engage their existing audience, attune themselves to their very specific needs, help to educate them, help to get them excited about what they were already doing, help them do their work better, and help them uh, to buy other things that they actually needed to buy. And, and then to watch videos about it. And so it was kind of, it had kind of four or five prongs to it um, that ranged from marketing to sales 
two, and the coolest one was an Internet of Things aspect where, okay, and I'm going to try and do this in, in, in a nutshell. Thermo Fisher has a product that, in essence, duplicates DNA. So in DNA research and breast cancer research, they go to a lot of work, as you probably know, to try and customize a particular strand of DNA. They'll spend millions to, to customize a strand of DNA. And then they have those, you know, a couple strands that they know that are right. Well, they need to duplicate them. And so this, what this app was about was a device that duplicated DNA. And so you put it in there with a bunch of other chemicals that you buy from Thermo Fisher, and uh, then you wind up with, you know, several thousand or, or, or a million strands of duplicated uh, DNA. It's basically an incubator. It would put the DNA through different cycles of hot and cold. But what was important also was that was the solution that you put in there of different chemicals. Now, it was that solution that they were looking to try and sell different, there was hundreds of different aspects to that solution. And so when people were looking to buy, they wanted to be able to, you know, quickly calculate. There was a calculator in there for the lab tech right. um, to help them calculate what types of uh, chemicals they needed. And then they could buy them right in the app. Then the, the most awesome thing was they're, they're there working with this uh, device that, that is duplicating their DNA. And, and if they, if, if something goes wrong, it's a very expensive mistake, right. maybe, maybe irretrievable. And so they have to kind of sit by the machine and babysit the machine, and they, they wouldn't leave it. Even if it took an hour, they would just sit there and do something else. And so what our app did was to feed a real-time feed of the temperature and the time left on the batch out of the device through a parse interface. And then what the app did is you could actually log into your device and pull up within with about 60-second delay max the temperature and time left on your thing. So if you want to go to Starbucks and get a coffee while you're while you're running a batch, um, you know, with you know fifteen thousand dollars of product and your your priceless DNA, you can go and do that and be back and watch, make and and monitor it while you're out. And so it was an Internet of Things project. Now sure. it wasn't uh, it wasn't didn't actually win a Zami, but it was nominated. And it was a finalist, and I was sitting in the front row at Evolve 2014. Um, William, William couldn't make it, um, waiting to hear our name called. Um, and so uh, it was very exciting, and w w there was also a video shot about it, but, uh, but we were finalists. Yeah, and I see the videos here on the Xamarin Evolve site. Um, we can also put a link to that in the show, too, so we'll be able to take a look at it. So are you going to Evolve 2016 this year? Absolutely. Yeah, do you have any, uh, are you giving any talks or anything, or are you just going as an attendee? Haven't heard yet about uh, whether I'm giving a talk, but I don't think I think the jury is still out. I don't think they've announced them all yet, but certainly it's my hope to to make uh, Evolve 2016 part of my book tour. But uh, whether or not I'm I'm giving a talk, I, there are a lot of a lot of people there I look forward to seeing again, and a lot of new friends that I'll probably see there. So we've actually spoken to a few a few folks before that have started businesses, you know, whether they started years ago or recently started their business. And I always find it interesting to hear the stories of how things are going and, you know, how is it different from going from a developer to a business owner? Do you have anything that you'd like to share with us from what that transition was like for you? That's a really good question. I would say that the primary, and this shouldn't come as a surprise, the primary change is just how one relates to people. And so as, as one sort of develops one's sense of and relationship to the technology to such a point where you've taken things as far as you can uh, with technology, and I've actually written a, a tiny little book that is not generally released on, on this very topic, you, yeah. sort of, you, you hit a ceiling. I call it uh, 
I call it the social ceiling. Social ceiling. Uh, if you're able to sort of push past that and, and develop the skills to, to move past that, then you have all these opportunities that were not available to you prior. And uh, all, those range from make, making it easier to work with people, making it much easier to be able to have people work for you, and making it easier to find clients and different kinds of clients. You know, I've always found that outside of just raw talent and skill, that networking and being able to, to, to talk to people, right? has been a very important skill in, in moving your career forward. Have you found that to be the same with your business? I have, but I think that the word networking is misleading because there's a common uh, perception that networking is this idea that you should go out in public and hand out your business card and, and collect business cards. And there right. isn't, there's often not a more advanced, and I should, shouldn't say that, that, that people aren't doing it more advanced because, of course, they are. What, what I should say is that, like, the education is not more advanced of, well, how do you push past just handing out a business card? And, and to me, it's really about figuring out ways to delve more deeply into your craft, delve more deeply into what you have to offer, and then find ways to provide value to the community over and above just looking for work. What could you say would be your most difficult challenges being a business owner? The most difficult challenges, I think, first of all, I mean, I just would have to say it, I don't know that many independent consultants who have been uh, in the business for for more than five years. Usually they they get out. I I served on the board of actually the Independent Computer Consultants Association. That organization is now defunct. And so a lot of what happens is people get, get out on their own or they get out on their own and they try to start a little business and then they wind up being sort of absorbed back into the uh, the, the, the Borg of, of recruiters and agencies uh, or very good companies. And not to say that that's, that's, that's not an excellent business path for a lot of people, but for someone like, like me and for people like me who really want to go out and make a go of it, the competition has become so stiff. There are organizations that, like that that have just literally hundreds of people on the telephone bashing down the doors of potential clients. And so finding a way to cut through that noise I think is is the biggest challenge, and finding a way to uh, really provide uh, not not just value in terms of building excellent software, but value in terms of public value to such a degree that you attract attention. Because I believe less and less people are actually getting work by referrals. A lot of a lot of work is provided, but people pick up the phone and have someone go find it for them. And so so that's the biggest challenge. Yeah, I definitely hear that a lot too, that you definitely have to be very proactive with your businesses. And again, particularly if it's just you, you have to be the salesperson, you have to be the marketer, you have to be on the phone, you have to be calling, you have to be sending emails, you have to, you got to be hungry for it. And, and it's definitely not a life that's for everybody. So one of the things that I often tell my students was, you know, you don't always have to be the person that works for somebody else. You can also be the person that starts your own business and owns your own company. So what do you think is it about you that really drives you to do this and drives you to want to be on your own and not you know, consumed by a larger corporation? That's a good question. The honest answer to that is that I, I also, in addition to being a technologist, I'm also an artist. And I'd start off as being a composer and then now as a, as a visual artist. And in order to pursue those things in such a way um, that they weren't extremely commercial – requires a lot of time and freedom. And so to me, it is very much about lifestyle. 
the idea that you can uh, set your own hours and do what you need to do at your own hours, provide value for your clients. You put in work to, to write, educate people about, about the field, but then you're also able to carve out for yourself bits of time where you can really, uh, really do some things that are interesting that you may or may not decide to sell. So I want to touch on something real quick that you said, but I, I don't want to diverge too much. You've made a comment that you were a composer. What I've actually found to be pretty interesting with a lot of people that we've spoken to, a lot of them have either been or still are musicians or they have some type of craft stuff that they build. So there's, there's, something, there's something interesting about seeing that trend between people. Right? Could you tell us a little bit about your past as a, as a composer? Sure. I'd first like to speak to your comment, though, because I think it's true. And I'd wondered for a long time why it was true that you found so many musicians and so many people who write music uh, in, in the field of technology and, and as developers or, or IT people. And I decided that, uh, especially after coming to understand how instruments worked, as a composer, I studied uh, all the instruments in the orchestra and, and wrote for them and uh, taught for them. And then all the, of the contemporary instruments you know, that, that you find in a, in a rock band or in a jazz band. Again and again, what I found was that the relationship between the user of the instrument and the instruments themselves, when they were looking at the music and trying to play it, was very much the, the same type of relationship that, that you will find when a developer creates code. So a composer creates a kind of a program for the user to follow while they're playing the music. And a lot of the, of course, the, you know, the, the details are different, like it's pitches and, and volume and technique and touch instead of values and specific objects and data, etc., um, and data types. But the abstractions uh, and the, the way in which you wrap up the abstractions and also the way in which the abstractions relate to one another in music uh, are actually quite similar to the types of things uh, that you find in programming. So let me ask you this then. When you're, when you're working, do you have any type of music that you might listen to, for instance, that really helps you get into the zone of what you're doing? Yeah, there's a, the, the, the music that I listen to is very different than the music that, that I used to write. I like Oliver Arnold's. I like uh, Message to Bears. Uh, I will listen to uh, Vangelis and in particular the Blade Runner, uh, embarrassingly the Blade Runner uh, album uh, over and over and over again. Nice. Uh, yeah. Really, mine's Tron Legacy. The Daft Punk. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Richie loves this album, dude. Like, I swear to God. I, I haven't listened I to do. it yet, but I need to take check it out. I do. I've been, I've, been, I've been hardcore coding all week, and so that's what I've been listening to. Well, that and Miles Davis. I've been yeah. flipping flop. Yeah, yeah. Love Miles Davis. So, Dan, I'm looking on your blog, and I see that your, so your music compositions have aired on NPR, and you also have a music curriculum at the Boston Conservatory. So, so this is not like a hobby for you. This is, this is like a serious thing for you. It, it was for a long, long time. And so the, the NPR, uh, and those were really, you know, they're, it, it's, they did play it, but it, it was the very tiny little snippets that they play in between uh, larger sections. But if you go on NPR.com and, and do a search on NPR, and the, the name, name of the band was Hermes Orchestra, right. uh, you can find it, and you can, you can play it. Uh, and they have full, full-length tracks there. Um, so I, I did have a group called the Hermes Orchestra for about three or four years oh, that nice. was a, a sort of a mix. Uh, it was neoclassical. It was a mix of classical music, 
musicians and contemporary musicians. So there was a, a bass teacher from Berkeley. There was an extraordinary uh, guitarist who could easily pick up an electric guitar. Uh, and then there was a cellist, uh, a drummer, and a flutist, and a clarinet. And so a lot of that music was... Uh, was completely written out. I was really the only one improvising in, in the group. I, do, I was doing a lot of, a little more free form, but, uh, but the group themselves was, uh, was playing something straightforward and written. Uh, and that was recorded, uh, it was one live album called Hermes Orchestra, which you can find on iTunes and on Google, Google Music and everything else if you want to find it. The other album, uh, which I released publicly, was, was a keyboard album, just me. And then some produce things, kind of like Vangelis produces other instruments. And that one's called Awake to See. So what we'll do, actually, if you don't mind, like we'll put some links to your albums and some information about your band on the, in the show notes. So if anybody wants to take a look at them or listen to the stuff that you've created, they could always go and check it out. That'd be great. So let's, let's, let's go back into to mobile really quickly. So you're actually on a book tour, right? And again, I'm looking at your blog, and I'm seeing all of these dates you know, you were here in Fort Lauderdale just the other day. Um, you were in, you've been to Jacksonville, Tampa. I see you're planning to go to Vegas. I really wish I could go with you. Um, <laughs> I've never been to Vegas, but I hear, you know, I hear what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. So, you know, it's one of those types of cities. So, so tell us about your books for a little bit and, you know, about the places you've been and, and what has that been like for you? Um, certainly. Well, the book is entitled Xamarin Mobile Application Development, Cross-Platform C-Sharp and Xamarin Forms Fundamentals. Uh, it's an A-Press book that's about 400 pages long. And uh, for the, the listeners who are uh, sort of Xamarin interested or, or Xamarin savvy, about half of it is Xamarin Forms, and then the other half is Xamarin Android and Xamarin iOS. So oh, it really nice. does cover everything, all of the Xamarin basics, anything you might want to know. And the way it's set up is that each chapter actually covers all three. So like the layout chapter will start off with Forms, then go into iOS, or then go into Android, then go into iOS. The navigation chapter will start with forms, then go into Android, then go into iOS. The idea being that most people at least have some interest or knowledge of one section, and they're trying to learn the other ones. And it's a really easy way to kind of hop back and forth and leverage what you already know to learn uh, those other those other platforms and techniques. So that is the thrust of the book. And so it was this – I was trying to write the book that I would – would like to read <laughs> to learn to learn Xamarin, and so uh, that that that's what I set out to do, and uh, and I'm getting feedback that people feel like that that it's it's succeeded in that respect, and the book tour is really a way just for me to get the good word out and to communicate more directly with the developer community. And so, as you say, I just finished a, a leg in Florida. Um, that was fantastic. It just, just a lot of excitement. I mean, with the Xamarin phenomenon, it's just, uh, you know, having been in the industry for, for a little, a little while, a lot of it is just kind of business as usual. And, you know, there's some interesting things that come and go, but something about what Xamarin has done in terms of building up a community has really been just extraordinarily positive and uh, and uplifting and energizing. And so I think it's one of my favorite things about working in this field at this time. And and it's also makes it very easy to go out into the community just because of that energy. And so Florida uh, last month and then uh, this month there will be, as you say, Vegas. That's uh, IBM Interconnect going to go talk about security uh, in mobile using Xamarin. And then, let's see, next month will be Washington, D.C. That's uh, Ed Snyder's group. Ed Snyder was the technical reviewer for my group, for my book. Uh, and so I, I have to go and, and, and see his group. 
Uh, he did a, an extraordinary job. I, actually, I'm going to give a plug for Ed. He actually has his own book coming out. It's a, it's a Xamarin Forms book, an advanced book that's coming out. Then I will head off back to Boston. There will be a, a, a talk in Boston in March. And then in June will be the, the Texas round. Uh, Florida and Texas, uh, you know, the two Bush states, um, seem to be <laughs> also the, the two most sort of excited and engaged. I mean, everyone's excited and engaged about Xamarin, but there are an, an enormous number of developers in those two states that are excited and engaged about Xamarin. So I'm looking very much forward to heading to Texas. Also, I lived in Houston for a while. So I'm looking forward to hitting an old stomping ground. So that'll be Dallas and Houston and and, uh, and hopefully Austin. Then hopefully out to California, out to uh, the other Xamarin City later on this year. So I don't usually see a lot of technical authors going on book tours. Like what, what was it that made you say, hey, let me go on a book tour? And how did you organize to, to get out of these events? I guess to me, the book wasn't just about writing a book. The book was really about starting a journey. Or, or it was a step in a journey. It's something that I started years before that. Nice, I like and, that. Yeah, and so the the next steps after writing a book are then going out to connect with the community about it, and and that is part of the purpose of having the book. It's not just you know there. I have other writing engagements that are pressing and weighing and 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 requesting, but but to actually then go out and say okay. Everybody, the book's written. Let's talk about it. And let's talk about the stuff that's in it and, and why it might be important. And let me get some feedback from you on what you think is important. You know, I did a lot of that uh, sort of by phone and by Skype. But now to actually go out and do that, uh, I think will we'll not only – I look at it as a sort of a, a community-building activity, but it's also a way for me to get to know more people. So, so Dan, let me ask you this. i got to ask you the, the show question now. It's about that time you get the show question. So, so what do you do when you're away from the keyboard? Ah, uh, that's a show question. All right, absolutely. What, do, what do I do when I'm away? Okay, well, I, I started answering it, but what I gave, what I really gave was some history. Um, so I'm gonna go ahead and answer that with, uh, with more recent uh, away from the keyboard. So, uh, as I was kind of alluding to earlier, I, I mean, first of all, I like to try and spend some time with my girlfriend, and I have a blue-fronted Amazon parrot that I like to spend time with. Uh, oh, really? Actually, yeah, does it, does yeah. it talk? He doesn't, but he's very expressive. Ah. His name is Chicken because he clucks. <laughs> <laughs> you have a parrot named Chicken. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah so it's a little bit of time with him. And then uh, some of the hobbies that I've engaged in. Of course, I can't go halfway on the hobbies either. I, I, uh, I love mixing tiki drinks. And so did a lot of homework on, on what a zombie really was and oh, really? what a Mai Tai really was. And so I'm, I'm kind of locally known among my uh, friends here in Boston. I, I, I've thrown a number of, uh, of tiki bashes where I get to expose them to some of my favorite variants on those particular drinks, along with some nice food that is in the Polynesian vein. Wow. So what's your favorite tiki drink to make? Like what's, what's what? Dan's signature drink? Well, I, probably the zombie. I, what I love is a zombie. And, and so, tell, and tell our listeners what 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 is in a zombie. Okay, so some of the formal ingredients, uh, some of the formal recipes, uh, have as many as fourteen ingredients. But that's a lot of ingredients. Uh, the ones that I make tend to have more like nine. A lot of people make them with grapefruit juice. I prefer to leave off the grapefruit juice, and I go to Trader Joe's and get their pineapple juice, do not get doles. 
it's Drek. And so go to Trader Joe's, get, uh, get pineapple juice from Trader Joe's. It's always very good, very nice, very sweet. And then what you want is a couple of kinds of rum. You want a dark rum. Uh, mm-hmm. I prefer uh, Jameson's, like a, a Jamaican rum. Yeah, uh, and uh, <laughs> and then the white can be just about anything, but but know that like rum is the same as whiskey. Like you, what you want is mixing rum. You don't really want tasting rum. You don't want very pricey, very aged. Like ten years is fine. Anything older than ten, you're just throwing away your money. I think because right. there's all pineapple juice in there. So white rum, like I'm not even a big fan of Bacardi, but I can put Bacardi in there because as long as Jameson's in there, I don't really notice the flavor of the white rum. So am I saying Jameson's rum? That's incorrect. I mean Appleton Estate. Appleton Estate is a delicious Jamaican rum that mixes well. There has to be a light rum and a dark rum. But in order for it to truly be a zombie, and I I don't drink it this way, but this is in order for it just so that the listeners know, it has to have some type of 151 in it, and that's why it's called a, a zombie. Um, but you can skip that and make it a little nicer. So that's the core of it. Um, that'll give you a nice sort of pineapple rum drink that's not quite a zombie. What makes it a zombie, then, is the combination of syrups and sort of savory flavors. And I'm going to throw out a few of them that I think are important. One is a little bit of grenadine, which is a pomegranate right. uh, flavor. Um then, then there's a, a sort of a, an anise flavor, and you can use uh, a Pernod or a, uh, anything a little bit licorice, licorice flavored. Then the sort of secret ingredient, and this is not the one people talk about, and you cannot buy this, and that is a cinnamon syrup. And so you've got to make this yourself with water and sugar and cinnamon sticks. And you just put in like the giantest handful full of cinnamon sticks that you can in there with some water and sugar and let it sit boil for a long time. Then you, then you strain it. And that is a necessary ingredient to my, to my taste of, uh, of what a zombie should taste like. And that was a secret ingredient for many, many years. Um, the people who own the bars that did not Don the beachcomber and these other guys, um, did not tell people what that was, which is why it, it makes it taste so special. And so a lot of the places that make it don't bother with that, but it really does make it uh, unique. A lot of places and a lot of people put in a little bit of flash of grapefruit juice. I skip it. I don't like it that tart. Then I missed one other one. I'm thinking this. Uh, some, some bitters, a few drops of bitters, I think. And that's it. And a trick, if you want to, if you really like zombies, you can do that little court that little sweet mix that I gave at the end, you can actually make ice cubes out of that mm. and then mix that in or melt it down, throw it in with uh, pineapple juice and rum, and you can make a zombie in, in three minutes uh, by doing that. Nice. And how long have you been making um, these, uh, these uh, mixed drinks for? Oh, I got interested in them about seven, seven or eight years ago. So now, are you, is it like every time your friends are having a party, they're like, we got to call Dan, he's going to bring That's you drinks. Right. That's exactly what happens. <laughs> I'm expected to, to bring a picture of something. Nice. That's awesome. That's awesome. So do you ever find that when you go out now and you order a cocktail yourself that you're, you're critiquing the technique of the bartender? And of you're, course. You're, you're, you're yeah. tasting, okay, well, he did this and he shouldn't have done that. And you're, you're kind of analyzing what your drink is, is made up of. Absolutely. And, and it's, a, it's a, a curse and a blessing. I, there are not many like tiki bars or, or Chinese restaurants that really make good drinks anymore. So if I really want a good drink, I'll usually go to just a, 
a, a place that is known for their drinks and then order something like that. But uh, truth be known, if I'm going to have a drink like that, I'd just prefer to make it at home. I'd like to thank Dad for being a guest on the show. It was great having the opportunity to chat with him. If you like the show, please tell your friends and leave a comment on the website at awayfromthekeyboard.com. Also, remember to check us out on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash podcast and on Twitter at podcast. You can follow me at Cecil Phillip and Richie at Jars. That's J-O-R-R-I-S-S. You can subscribe to the show via the website or on iTunes. And if you really want to know what makes us tick, sign up to our newsletter where you get extra episodes and behind-the-seat access to Away From The Keyboard. Next on Away From The Keyboard, we'll have open source advocate and Glimpse co-founder, Mr. Nick Molnar. This thing that I was able to pick up because my uncle gave me a computer when I was 13 years old, <laughs> and I could hack around on the internet reading posts on on WebMonkey and, and Wired and places like this and learn how to build a website and build an application and do all of this kind of stuff on my own. I feel like all of those little things, all those little posts that people put on the internet that help me to learn and propel me to being able to, to feed my family, I, I always think that that's kind of like this just this weird thing. I have no clue who those people were who wrote those posts, but I always felt like, man, I need a way of doing that, right? I need a way of giving back. I'm so glad we got Nick back. He's one of my favorite people ever. Yeah, Nick's a good guy, man. We had a good ch- we had a good chat with him, so this should be interesting. Did, did I ever tell you the uh, the time I, I I was over his house for uh, Orlando Code Camp, and then they put like a, um, a beauty pageant sash on me when I walked in the door? What? <laughs> We're gonna have to save that for next time, people. Oh my god! See you next week. <laughs> Why did you have a sash on here? Next week, people. Oh my god. <laughs> See you next week. We want to thank you for listening to Away from the Keyboard. As a reminder, we will have new episodes each and every week. You can interact with us on Twitter at AFTK Podcast or at awayfromthekeyboard.com. Hasta luego! Thank oh, you. you know, you know what you would want to talk about. So, so, what I want to talk so about? Richie's a baseball fan. Are you? A, I am. Are you a baseball fan, Dad? Because I know you live in Boston. I know Boston people know. are very serious with about their baseball. I, a lot of them are, and I really, I have to tell you, it's. I, I regret not being more into sports here, but I, I, I no. can't talk to you, talk to sports for more than ten minutes. <laughs>
Okay, that's fine. <laughs> that's how I feel about baseball. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I've been a I've been a lifelong Cubs fan, so um, we could we could talk uh, a lot about that. I, you know, when I was younger and and didn't have so many responsibilities in my life, I was uh, definitely a much more attentive sports fan. But you know, as I get older, you know, with with kids and had my own uh, consulting firm and you know user group and podcasts and all the other stuff i haven't been paying any attention whatsoever <laughs> yeah life kind of happens right and things kind of start to occupy yeah. this space of time in your day yeah you know but you know i will make it to um like when the cubs are down here in miami we'll go to one or two games um i did was able to get the regular field um last year which was great um but yeah other than that that's it's not much paying attention to anything in sports right, 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 right. Yeah, I mean, I'm more of a basketball guy. I watch a lot of basketball. I was able to get out to the uh, uh, when the Red Sox won. I was able to actually get to the the game where they did that, and I just lucked out. Uh, oh wow! It was the only time I'd been to a sports bar in like five years, and uh, and I was in, in there when they when they won that particular series, and and. Uh, it was just kind of that insane. must have been crazy. It was, oh yeah, insane. And so you, you may have heard a little bit of this. Uh, so there were just kind of a gang of us that headed out onto the street, and we, we weren't even in downtown Boston. It was just kind of like a Somerville, which is sort of north of Boston. But it was uh, there was there must have been twelve policemen on motorcycles that were just kind of rolling down the street like a posse. Um, yep. Kind of making a presence so that so that this group who, that was heading out onto the street wouldn't uh, wouldn't uh, go crazy, and so uh, the energy was just terrific. So, so I, I did have that experience, and so I, I'm grateful for that. Nice, 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 nice. Yeah, I was actually in the stadium for Game Seven of the 1997 World Series when the Marlins beat the Cleveland Indians. Really? Yeah, that was amazing. So. The story is, is that, you know, this was in the early days of the web and, you know, back then when tickets went on sale, it just crashed the entire system, right? So it, it, that happened that day when the tickets went on sale and the only tickets I could get that later that night when I was finally get, able to get back in the system was game seven. And I'm like, look, you know, my, my dad was a lifelong, is a, is a lifelong baseball fan. He's uh, never been to a World Series. He was drafted by Chicago White Sox diehard cub fan all of his life and um i'm like look let me just buy the tickets right let me get four tickets and you, you never know you know if they get to a game seven that means we get to go to a world series game and he's like okay and sure enough it the series went back and forth it was a really ugly series and it finally gets to a game seven and i'm like dad we get to go to a world series game and it was and it was the best game of the series like that game like saved the series as far from watchability standpoint and it was amazing because the team we were rooting for the home team uh, marlins actually won the whole thing so not our team but it was still exciting to see you know the the, the home team actually win a world series at home that's awesome that's awesome to be there in this the stadium yeah the stadium was just electric i have you know i've been to a lot of um, University of Miami football games, that's my alma mater, uh, when they were, you know, in their prime and winning national championships and, you know, just feeling energy of a stadium. But there was nothing like this, that stadium that night. Um, there, there was just 
uh, a, a quiet nervousness in the early round in the early innings and goes to extra innings and you know when they when that winning run gets crossed the plate it just it erupted and it was just this this you know this jubilance just poured out of the stadium and it was it was really an amazing uh, thing to see. I, I don't think I've ever seen an, a, an event like that ever again, unless I go to the Wrigley Field and, and they win a World Series. <laughs> Maybe then that will top that. <laughs> awesome. And it's actually not only a website, but it's a website, it's a podcast. What they do is they talk about a lot of topics ranging from different types of science and culture. And it really, I don't know. I don't know what I want to say. <laughs> I, don't want to, Try it again. I don't want to do this anymore. I quit. <laughs> I resigned from this show, damn it. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> Are you back? I just felt like doing something stupid. Um <clears throat> So one website, 